Let's go ahead and turn to God's Word. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel, uh, continuing in our series this morning. Uh, we will be in chapter 16, uh, continuing our series entitled, The Kingdom in Search of a King. The text is printed in your bulletin. It'll be up on the screen, but if you have a physical Bible, go ahead and turn there, 1 Samuel chapter 16. You know, last week, uh, Chuck covered uh, 1 Samuel 15, and really kind of from chapter 13 forward, what we have seen is that the king, King Saul, has been rejected by God. We have seen that he has been wayward, he has run away from the Lord, he has not been obedient, and the Lord told Samuel in chapter 13 that his kingship would not last. So the last few chapters we have seen Saul continue to rebel. Today, in our text, we actually see a pretty abrupt change. We see the Lord instructing Samuel to go and anoint a new king. So kind of big picture of what we're seeing is God anointing a man, Saul, him rebelling against his word. But the Lord does not give up on the kingship. We see the Lord is still willing to work within the kingship. And we see a promise or um, instruction in chapter 13 that this is going to be a king after God's own heart. So this man today that Samuel goes to find, to anoint, is going to be a man after God's own heart. As we've done in the past several weeks, we're not going to read the whole text up front, but we're going to go portion by portion. We will read every verse uh, today. It's only 13 verses, but um, we'll read them uh, section by section as we go along. Let's go ahead and pray as we get into the word this morning. Father, we are humbled to remember your faithfulness uh, to this church in particular over the last 22 years of raising up men and women and families to gather together to worship you and in spirit and in truth. Father, we are also so grateful that even as we look on characters in the Bible like King Saul and many that follow him that run away from the Lord, that you continue to be faithful to your covenant. That throughout time and space you have held your church close, that you have continued to move amongst them. And Father, we pray that for this particular church here at Christ the King today, that as we open your word, that we would be uh, people who would hear it, would listen, not only with our minds, but with our hearts, that it would change who we are. Lord, we need you in all that we do. Pray that you would be here this morning with us. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So since Christmas, there have been uh, numerous articles that have been written about this uh, fad that happened over Christmas. In particular, it was a fad that had to do with a specific type of gift that was highly requested that was out of the norm. And you might think it was maybe the, the most sold toy or maybe the uh, piece of electronics that couldn't be found that everyone was looking for, but it wasn't that. The fad was falling on preteen girls. I'm going to slow down. We're talking about 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds, maybe, in that range, okay? In 2022, the year prior, these very girls were probably asking for, I have a 9-year-old, so I know, right? They're asking for dolls, for dresses, for toys. But the fad in 23, this last year over Christmas, that these same girls were asking for anti-aging cream to be wrapped underneath the Christmas tree. 
anti-aging cream for a 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old. And since then, you go on to Google this, you'll find many, many articles from dermatologists, parents, grandparents, Christian and non-Christian alike, kind of outraged, right? Like saying like the influence for towards children, right, is, is horrific in this area. So this is just a snapshot, right? We back up and think about culture as a whole. That beauty has been an idol of humanity throughout the generations. And it's showing in our particular place. When a 10-year-old is said, marketed to, and say, you need anti-aging cream. It shows that we are all fallen. Remember, we talked about idols not in always being a particularly bad thing, right? Beauty and attractiveness is actually something given from God, right? For us to be enjoy that to be enjoyed. But whenever that God-given beauty enters into the space that only God occupies, is when it becomes sin that when a god created reality enters into the place where god is when we begin to worship the creation what god creates or an aspect of creation like beauty instead of the creator the truth is we look at the culture as a whole and i would include myself in this that we have a vision problem and this is not a vision problem that you can go see an eye doctor and they'll give you a prescription for contacts or even LASIK surgery. No, this is a vision problem of the heart. That what we see with our eyes and what we value with our heart as most important is often not the same thing that the Lord sees as most important. Our culture, even ourselves, we see beauty, we see outward adornment in high importance, that we are really blind to the reality that God sees. And what we see in our text today is that God sees life and people in a different way. That He doesn't merely focus on the outward appearance, but He looks down to the heart. 1 Samuel 16 is coming out of 1 Samuel 13, where He said the king will come, a man after his own heart. It's kind of ironic, but even Samuel in our text, you're going to see this, sizes up the men. By their outward appearance. And God instructs him. The Lord looks to the heart. So that's our big idea for today. Is that the Lord looks upon the heart of his people. This outline is in your bulletin. It will be up on the screen for you as well. We're going to really just walk top to bottom to the, of the text. The first section is kind of an introduction. Into the main uh, block of text. From, but the first section is Samuel sent. Verses 1 through 5. And then we will look at David anointed. In verses 6 through 13. Okay, so let's look first at Samuel sent. This is verses 1 through 5. We're going to begin just by looking at verse 1. Okay, verse 1 says this. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Okay, beginning of the text, we see Samuel is grieving over the rejection of God by God's king. You can think about this, that Samuel was probably pretty close with King Saul, right? Like he knew him very well, and his heart is breaking because he saw Saul reject God time and time and time again. So it hurts him, but the Lord responds to his hurt. 
And he responds by instructing him to go and find the next king. Fill your horn with oil so you may go anoint a new king of Israel. And this king will come from the household of Jesse in Bethlehem. And we talk about Bethlehem a lot in the Christmas story, right? But Bethlehem is a small town five miles south of Jerusalem, very remote area. So from the get-go, from the get-go of this instruction for him to go to this obscure place, we see a contrast with King Saul. Because remember, King Saul was the son of Kish, who was a man of wealth and power. He was very prominent, and this was his big, strong son. It's very important that we pause for a moment and really focus on the last phrase, and this is where I want to sit just for a second. It says, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, the word translated, provided, in this section, is the Hebrew word ra'ah. And it's generally translated see, to see. So that, that text could be, and that is actually seeing, the idea of seeing is actually the thing that runs through this whole passage. So what we see here is that it could be translated, I have seen for myself a king among the sons of Jesse. Word, a picture that came to my mind, and I don't feel like my kids do this anymore, but, you know, where's Waldo? For many of us, we're like our childhood, right? And it's like all these people, and then if you've ever seen, like, an illustration of one, or you can see the cheat sheet, right? It has, like, a, a high—everything is dark, and then it's highlighted where Waldo is, right? And it, to me, it was like that, right? It's like all these people in a far-off area, I see a king for myself right there. He sends him. To Bethlehem. So here we go. Verse 2. It goes on. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord had commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Okay, so Saul knows Samuel, right? So Samuel also knows that Saul's in trouble. So Samuel gets nervous about this instruction to go and anoint a new king. So the Lord gives him a legitimate reason to go to Bethlehem. Take this heifer. You need to go sacrifice to the Lord. And when you're there, invite this man, Jesse. Have his sons come with you. From there, I will show you the man to anoint. So he arrives in Bethlehem. The text tells us the elders greet him trembling. When you think about this, it was I didn't understand this at first when I read the text. But generally, if a prophet were to come into a city that he doesn't usually go to, it's usually coming with a hard word. He is coming down on sin towards that community. So the first question from them, do you come in peace? And his answer is, yes, I do come in peace. This is all I come for, to sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel calls for Jesse and his sons to join him in the sacrifice. So that's this kind of all introduction that leads us into the second point, David anointed. 
takes us to verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says this. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Okay, I want you to think about the, this is a, it's a story, right? Think about the story in your mind. The firstborn enters. He's good looking. He's tall. Samuel says, this must be the Lord's anointed. Thinking back to Saul's election as king, this is probably how it went, right? Like very similar it was related to his appearance, what they saw on the outside, that Saul was handsome. He was a head taller than other men, the text tells us. And we see here that Samuel, God's prophet, is seeing the same way as the people, not seeing as God sees. He looks at the firstborn. He says, he has the birthright. He is tall. He is handsome. He is strong. This must be him. Remember back to... For Samuel 13, I've mentioned this several times, it's very important for us to understand that for where we are here. And the text says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So Samuel, even God's prophet, is looking at the outside of the person, saying that must be him. But the Lord corrects him. I look to the heart. Now several commentators said that this verse, 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 7 is one of the central themes of the entire scripture that chuck preached uh, isaiah 52 and 53 you know, over christmas and he said if this is this is it right this is the center of the bible this is one of those passages just like isaiah 52 and 53 that the lord does not look on the outside but he looks to your heart The Lord looks to the heart of a person. Yahweh immediately instructs Samuel when he goes to the outside not to look on what he can see with his eyes. For what a man sees does not matter. For man only sees to the eyes, but the Lord looks down into the heart. Remember where we started having a vision problem, each one of us. I wouldn't include myself in that, that we see just to the eyes. Sometimes they're beautiful eyes, and we say, you have beautiful eyes. My kids had really blue and like beautiful eyes, and they were really big when they were kids. That was like, one of the things that they always talked about. But when I thought about this, it's like they always just saw straight to their eyes and nothing further, right? They only saw to the outside of the person, but God sees to the heart. One theologian says this about this section, that this shows the discernment that we lack, that only God's wisdom is adequate for directing his kingdom. There is at least one thing that we can seek to do. Beware of the impressiveness of external appearances because the Lord looks to the heart. Okay, it goes on in verses 8 through 11. Jesse called Abnabdad and made him pass before Samuel. And, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. 
But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. So Samuel then goes through all of his sons, one by one by one by one, right? He gets to the end. None of them are the anointed, not a single one of them. I'm going to imagine Jesse's position here. I'm sure Jesse imagined no need even to bring the youngest boy. That's apparent in the text. Oh, there's no way it could be David. No way at all. Let's just leave him out with the sheep. The theme of this passage is how God sees differently than we see, right? Talk about not even being seen. He wasn't even in the room, right? He wasn't even there. His dad, Samuel, not even on the radar, right? They go through it. Son by son by son by son. This is not him. He is not here. Jesse didn't even have him come to be seen by Samuel, yet the Lord sees him. Despite no one else seeing David's heart, he is seen by the Lord. Are you sure you do not have another son? There is the youngest, but he is with the sheep. Samuel says, go get him now. We will not even sit until he comes. Verse 12 takes us. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So David enters after they walk through. I want you to think about what he probably looked like, right? He was out with the sheep, which was messy business. He comes in, probably hair a mess, smelling horrible, right? And they're sizing these guys up by their appearance. He walks in. And the first thing, the text tells us is about his appearance. When I first read this, I'm like, that doesn't really make sense to me, even as your pastor, right? It seems contradictory. That's what he would say. Didn't the text just tell us that God looks to the heart? But the description of, of David actually takes us in a different way. The author says he is ruddy or kind of red in his complexion. He has beautiful eyes and he is handsome. My first thought, we might expect David to be described as the opposite of his brother Eliab or the opposite of King Saul. And many scholars have actually stretched this contrast. That Eliab and Saul are tall and strong and David is this meek little man. He's short and weak. But this is not how he's described in the text. He's described as handsome. So you see, even in our first thought, when we think that he must look like the opposite of his firstborn son. We are still focusing on the outside. That's what, that's what I, I sat in the text this week and that's what I did. I'm like, wow, really? Like, that's what I did. I'm still looking to the outside, seeing just what's on the surface. If God doesn't want the tall, strong man for king, he must want the short and weak man. But when we do this, we are still seeing like a blind man, looking only to the outside, missing the whole point. That God doesn't see what's on the outside. He looks to the heart. In other words, it's not that God didn't want a tall and strong king looking on the outside, but he wanted a king after his own heart. One theologian says this. We must not conclude from verse 7 that God opposes fine appearance, as if ugliness or repulsiveness constitute the giving of God's call. 
Often you see even children's illustrations, you're going to see like his brothers, and then David's like this little guy over here with a slingshot. And it's just really inaccurate. The note in verse 12 about David's good looks should knock that notion in the head. Rather, external appearance neither qualifies nor disqualifies. It simply does not matter. For Israel's good. Yahweh looks to the heart, and that is what matters. God sees the heart of this man. He doesn't look to outward appearances. Verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So David is anointed with king, and just like we have seen in the past, immediately the Spirit rushes upon him that Yahweh both chose David anointed him through his prophet, and he also equips him for the work that he gives him, the Holy Spirit. God sees the heart of this man and says, this is the king for my people. Think about the whole story. Even Jesse, David's own father, thought little of David. He was the youngest child. He didn't even bring him in. While Jesse and Samuel were looking to the outside, seeing nothing in David, the Lord saw David. He saw his heart. It's the first thing I want us to notice. For our own lives. The first thing I want you to hear in application and how this takes you to God is that God sees you. He sees your very heart. That is where he looks. In a culture that is obsessed with anti-aging cream for a 10-year-old and beauty that looks only to the outside, we have a God that looks to the heart. For many of you, you have been faithful Christians longer than I've been alive. It's, the Lord has worked mightily through you. I want you to see that the Lord sees you down to the core. He sees you praying for your wayward child night after night, year after year. He sees you respond in kindness when everything in you wants to lash out in anger. He sees you serve your friend, your spouse, your children, even when it's uncomfortable. As I've gotten older, I know I'm much younger than many of you, but um, it's not. I actually look up to you. I, I talked to Chuck about this. You know, you get to 1 through 30, and then you kind of hit the pinnacle of 30. Once you hit 30, I start looking up to the 60 and 70-year-olds. So I really look up to many of you. So I'm not saying that demeaningly in any way. But, you know, as I've noticed in my own life, as the Lord has worked in me, what I've noticed is much of the sanctification that goes on in the heart, and I think you would agree with me with this, it goes very unnoticed by many people. Because there's a rolling dialogue that goes on in your head. And that changes as the Lord changes you. But you're the only one that hears that. Right? So much of your sanctification that goes on in your heart is no, unnoticed by many people, if not all. But what we see in the text is God sees your heart. So if God says the heart is the priority, let our focus be the heart and heart change. I want us to challenge one another rather than focus on behavior. We focus on heart change. It's hard to measure heart change. So we usually focus on behavior. It's hard to measure these things year after year. Am I more patient than I was a year ago? I think a little bit. 
but I'm not sure. Because that's so hard to measure, we say, well, I can read my Bible more, which is a good thing, right? But like, we always want to move to behavior because it's easy to measure. But this passage makes it clear. The Lord sees and desires your heart more than anything else. So how do we cultivate a heart that seeks the Lord? Obviously, Chuck and I are always going to answer a question like that with getting on our knees and praying first. That we believe the Lord is the one who sanctifies. The The Lord is the one who justifies. At the same time, we need to ask him to reveal his beauty to us more and more. That our deepest desires would be to taste and see that the Lord is good. And I would encourage you and my own heart to drench our lives in prayer and scripture. Asking that the Lord would give us a tender heart in our time, where we are in our culture now. What the world needs is tender Christians. Tender, gentle, and loving people towards a hostile world. This is what we see when we look to the heart of our Savior. Tender mercy towards sinners. So let us seek God, allowing for our lives to flow out of the love that he has given to us. Maybe you hear all of this. You say, Pastor, I I know my heart. I'm embarrassed that the Lord can see it. Another thing that we should be reminded of is that if you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus, Your lack of perfection, even when he looks down to the heart, does not repel him. Does not have him move away from you. Your lack of sanctification does not cause God to turn away. Because in reality, the heart of Christ is what God sees when he looks to your heart if you are closed in him. That you can seek God, asking for heart change, knowing that he already accepts you as his blameless son. That when we look to the heart of Christ, we see a Savior who is gentle gentle and tender towards us. He has a heart that welcomes sinners to the table to be restored in his blood. We are to humbly approach his grace so that our heart will continue to be changed. Dane Ortland in his great book, Gentle and Lowly. If you haven't read this book, you have to read it. It's, it's going to be one of these that, that gets passed to our kids, right? There's not many books that are written each generation that gets passed down, but Gentle and Lowly is going to be one of them. He says this, there are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live it either for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can live it for the sm- smile of God or from the smile of God. You can live it for a new identity as a son or a daughter, or you can live from your new identity as son or daughter of God. The call is to let us look to Jesus, sing his tender, gentle heart, and through his love for us, we can seek a heart that loves him. You know, earlier we talked about David being a king that was not seen even by his own father, not even in the room. It helps us to look forward in the Bible to another king who would come and it would not be seen as the king that would be coming. 
There are many people, events, institutions we could say in the Old Testament that foreshadow or point towards a Messiah to come. David is probably the foremost of that. That Jesus himself was known as the son of David in the line of Jesse. That when Jesus comes to the earth, people look to the outside just like they did with David. They see a carpenter from a no-name town with no-name parents. He comes into a culture that was expecting a certain type of Messiah. Somebody that would come physically strong to conquer God's people from oppression. This king would come in mighty in power and strength, slaying the enemy with a sword. So the messianic expectations, even when Jesus comes, make the people blind to Jesus. When he arrived on the scene, people looked at him on the outside, saw nothing special. Isn't that Mary and Joseph's son? How is he anyone special? A man born in a small, obscure place of Bethlehem, the same place that Samuel went to anoint David. He would come teaching the message of laying down your life, of serving and for the forgiveness of sins through his blood, not of conquering the enemy with a sword. Towards the end of his life, Jesus would ride into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. God's own people would hang him on a cross and mock. If you were the Son of God, come down from the cross. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, these are Jewish people. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. We will believe in him then. If he trusts in God... Let God deliver him. Jesus is hanging on the cross. God turns his face away, allowing him to be crushed for us. God turned away from his own son, allowing him to take the penalty for sin that you and I do each day. Instead of slaying the enemy with a sword, Jesus would allow himself to be slayed for us. People looked at Jesus on the outside Looked with their eyes, saw nothing, saw weakness. But looking to the inside, what we know about Jesus, this man, he fixed his heart on doing the will of the Father. And you know what the will of the Father was? To crush him for you and for me. So we're in danger when we look to the outside because even the cross looks weak on the outside. First Corinthians God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And it was in this unseen on the outside, King Jesus, that we can have freedom from salvation and salvation from sin. But when we look to the outside, we see weakness in Jesus. But when we look to the heart of the cross, we see power strong enough to conquer our greatest enemy. This is the king that would lay his life down for you and for me. Let us turn to Jesus, the one that brings renewal and healing to our very hearts. Let's pray. Father, we look to our own hearts and we often see more of Saul than we do David. We see rebellion. We see turning away from you. And Father, we know that through the blood of your son that you have covered us in his righteousness. Father, we thank you that you are a God who sees us. And though you see us more clearly 
than any other person in the world. You love us in a way that is indescribable. Father, we thank you for the mercy and grace that we receive through your son Jesus, that you have made our hearts new because because of his work. Father, we come to this table now knowing that you will be present here with us, moving and working, nourishing your people. Father, we thank you for all you have done in your son Jesus. In the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen.